e kore e ngaro hiti tamure no raratonga. A cabbage tree is never carried away in a gale. Enga mana enga reo enga karangaranga utemotsu no mai hare mai ano kiti nei wahanga eki nei kote ahika. Ku Justin Murray ho, I'm Justin Murray and I'm Maria Rakraku and welcome back Fano Ma to your weekly fix of stories relating to Te Ao Māori, the Māori world. Coming up, we've probably seen them around on a local level at our marae and also handling huge crowds at events like Te Matatini. We're talking about the Māori Wardens. My experience of Wātere Māori Wardens has, has mainly had, um, been in a governance level. Um, I've, I've actually been a part of um, executive um, committee for the last six years. But um, because of the work that I see that they do, I actually want to get down there and to actually totoko there as well. Um, because I see a need for it in terms of our young people. And also in terms of the positive presence that, that Māori Wātene are. Justine was at a hui this week where there's a push to increase the presence of Māori wardens in downtown Wellington. We've got that coming up. With the world news pretty much dominated by natural disasters these days, tonight we remember one of our own, the eruption of Mount Tarawera. We've got archival recordings from a queer, Mrs J.S. Thompson, who witnessed the event when she was five. I was too young to be afraid, and at that time we did not know that the eruption we were watching was as close to us as it was. We thought it was White Island. Mount Tarawera was 60 miles from us as the crow flies across the plains, no hills to block our view. I well remember the night. At first, my parents were not really disturbed by the earthquakes, when the rumbling noises began, my mother wondered if the roaring noise meant that a chimney was on fire. Plus, we'll hear how the iwi, Tuhorangi, was displaced following the 1886 disaster that saw the destruction of the pink and white terraces. And musician Tikitani explains what happened in Tauranga. Nā re te iwi, kuerara ngā whakamahuki mō Paul. That's what's coming up tonight on Te Ahika. You're listening to Tiaika, Radio National. National. History was created last week when a Māori Farming Incorporation from Taupo won the Sheep and Beef category of the Māori Farming Award, the Ahufenua Trophy. Waipapa 9 also hold the dairying category. Maria was there at the black tie event held in Rotorua where, amongst all the formalities, had a chat to Ahufenua Chipusen Kingi Smiler with supporting music from Michael Jackson, Abba and the Bee Gees. Ahufenua has been carrying on the dream of Ta'apirana and uh, Lord Bledisloe who created the competition in 1932 and it was first competed for in 1933. Uh, as a dairy competition uh, is where it started and then uh, as that developed uh, it also then started to include sheep and beef which started in 1953 so now we have two cups and each year now the competition is alternated between dairy and sheep and beef and it's really uh, following through on Apirana's dream which is to uh, work together uh, to lift the productivity and the profitability on the farms but do that in a way that they could work together to take it to the mar- the products to the market. So this is primarily focused on Māori farming, eh? So this is uh, based uh, on Māori farming. So what makes Māori farming stand out from non-Māori farming? Uh, I think the standouts that we're seeing now, I think a lot of people haven't recognised that uh, since Tāpirana's time of uh, creating the major land development projects in the 1950s, most of that control is still retained by the Crown through Māori Affairs. And so many of the owners have only just taken their land back within the last 20-odd years. So the growth that we've seen in the last 20 years in Māori farming has been phenomenal and the performance has been quite incredible growth. And so people are surprised uh, that they haven't heard of this before and that's one of the reasons because it's only actually a reasonably recent phenomenon. And so... Um, Going forward, I mean, this, uh, the Ahu Whenua program is just will get bigger and bigger. Uh, we operate where we are different is that we have large-scale farms, and we're operating these large-scale farms 
uh, at highly productive uh, and profitable levels. And so when you compare it to uh, the average mainstream farm, you will find that ours are probably 10 times larger. And it's much uh, harder to actually intensify and improve a large property, as you would understand. And so that's why the benchmarks that are shown by these three finals that we had in the sheep and beef competition for 2011 was absolutely phenomenal. So what is contributing to the phenomenal growth in the past 20 years? Well, it simply is down to the leadership being shown by our people in terms of the governance over the properties and their ability to hire themselves good management and good staff to ensure that they're getting good people uh, that know... Uh, the best practice and ensuring that the, the, the properties are being well farmed. I guess I'm trying to really get to the the basis of what is it that makes Māori farming so different to non-Māori farming? In a technical sense, um, uh, it, it's, it is no different. Uh, the key differences are, though, that we're making decisions for the long term because we don't... Uh, because we never sell our whenua when we're looking to future generations, we have long-term goals and plans. And so they're working on these long-term, so there's no short-term. Uh, most Pagia farmers are farming for capital gains. So they buy a property, and then in 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years' time, they sell the property for a profit. We do not do that. But for our shareholders to benefit, we need to be able to uh, ensure that the environmental uh, care is as good as a kaitiaki, but at the same time and done in such a way that we can earn sufficient revenues to contribute to uh, the development of our whānau by educational grants and also in dividends. And so it's important, therefore, that uh, the emphasis on is earning a living from the property, whereas those that farm for capital gain don't have the same focus on earning that because they're just looking at selling the property at a later time. So you're a farmer, eh? So I'm a farmer, yes. And what have, some of, what have been some of the things that you've seen that you've responded to as a Māori farmer that's contributed to your own farming practice? It's important that one is knowledgeable um, in a number of areas. And so if we look at it firstly on farm, I ensure that um, I'm aware of the best practice in regard of both sheep and beef farming and dairy farming and that um, ensuring that we have the systems and the people and the development programs and the measurement programs to ensure that we're always continuing to develop and grow our properties and ensuring that we're applying the best science and the best practices to that and so I work very hard at understanding uh, and being at the forefront of knowing what the new innovations are, what is the new technology, and so we adopt technology quickly. We evaluate it, and if we think it's going to enhance uh, our farming practices, then we implement it immediately. And so we're doing that on a continuous basis. Off the farm, we uh, look to understand how the markets work in the, in the world markets, and we try and create relationships through the value chain in terms of who we sell our product to, to ensure that we're getting good prices and that we're getting as much of that value that goes to the final customer as we can. And that takes a lot of time and effort. You will find that many farmers uh, just look inside the farm gate um, and, um, and you don't see that, the extent of that development. The farms that enter the Ahu Whenua Trophy, they self-identify as Māori farms, right? What about Māori farmers that aren't in that loop? OK, so the competition's for any Māori farmers, and we have had individual farmers, and uh, two or three years ago, uh, Dean Nikora uh, won the Ahu Whenua Dairy Competition. That's a guy in Danny Verk, right? Uh, Hawke's Bay. So uh, he... Um, demonstrated that as, a, as an individual that he met, uh, he and his uh, wife and family uh, you know, grew, grew a very large and profitable dairy farm and, and did that very well. So you can, we have proven that we can do it on an individual basis and there are those uh, that have done that and they're very welcome to enter the competition and so we encourage that. So this is just not for large trusting corporations, 
or any Māori can enter the competition. Now the prize pool is quite sizable, isn't it? Yes, it is. And and so the pri the total prize is for a regional winner, uh, fifteen thousand dollars in cash and product, and then for the winner of the Ahu Whenua, the total prize money is another $40,000 of cash and services. So that's all good. But that's like peanuts and farming dollars. It's like $2. <laughs> the, gra the, greatest the greatest prize that they win in Ahu Whenua is the, the pride that their whanau and the shareholders take uh, in being acknowledged as uh, uh, helping set the benchmark for the next level of farmers to come into the competition. You will find that when you go amongst the shareholders of the winning farm, uh, the huge pride that they have uh, in the competition and uh, the prize money is just uh, uh, some recompense for the, their time and effort and in terms of entering the competition. The real value is being acknowledged by your peers and the pride that your shareholders take in your success. That's right, Kingy Smiler. Two dollars indeed, eh? But it was the end of what was a very, very long night. Next week, Salwan Parata, chairperson of Pakihirua, one of the other finalists, talks about the relevance of the competition to his people and the responsibilities of farming on behalf of your iwi. We all know that Fakatoki e harate kumara e kōrero ana motona reka. The kumara does not boast about its own sweetness. But because we're not the kumara in question, we'd like to mention a few Māori who this week we're going to talk up because they're awesome. Katerina te heikoko mataira he wahine toa ki te hapai te reo rangatira. A staunch advocate of te reo Māori, a writer and legend was made a dame companion of the order. Catherine Moana Jews, Kathy Jews, she was made an officer of the Order for Services to Māori because, like Katarina, she's a staunch advocate of Te Reo Māori. And Nolan Tariho Rimitiru Raihania of Tokomaru Bay for her services to Māori. Nolan's also a 28th Māori Battalion vet, and we've featured him here on Te Ahika. Kia ora, Nolan. Uri kore. Julie Ann Dwyer received the Queen's Service Medal, or QSM, for her services to Māori and the community. You may remember we featured Julie Dwyer on the show last year in our documentary about how Māori find love. There's just a few of them. To check out who else featured on the honours list, have a look at our webpage, radionz.co.nz forward slash te ahika. That's T-E-A-H-I-K-A-A. Nā reira, kia koutou katoa, he mihi tēnei, kia koutou. Nā koutou, he tauira mā katoa. You're an example to all of us. Like the Tarawira explosion that made the headlines in 1886, we'll hear about that soon, musician Takitane hit the headlines earlier this year when he was arrested following one of his concerts in Tauranga. Yet, that's just one small part of this artist's musical life. The album, uh, Into the World of Light, how would you describe the album? Um, I wanted to do something that was really progressive, really beat-driven, bass-heavy, um, something more targeted towards the dance floor, not so much targeted towards radio or TV. Um, it's more for my sort of live fan base, I guess. And um, So with that in mind, um, it's really progressive. There's a lot of stuff on there that is quite challenging, but um, I, I'm really proud of this record. You know, it's, um, it doesn't have any big radio hit singles on it, but it still made it to number one. So it's re made me really proud to know that um, my fans out there, you know, uh, still support what I do, even though um, I'm not writing um, big cheesy uh, radio hits. That's not a reference to the song Always On My Mind, is it? <laughs> yeah, I love that song, but that's kind of like um, um, what a lot of people expect me to write, even though I've been doing this progressive dub, reggae, yeah. drum bass, dubstep thing for a long, long time now.
So this album is, um, I particularly love the track uh, Bloodstone. Now, I had to read the CD sleeve that it was Holly Smith because it doesn't, to me, it doesn't really sound like Holly Smith. Yeah. Was that intentional in terms of the, the lane of the tracks and, and uh, the production side of things? Yeah, for sure. Um, I wanted to, um, I guess, take Holly and put her into a, an environment or take her out of her comfort zone a little bit um, and do something a little more heavy and rocky and, and crazy and distort her vocal and make it sound quite punk, if you know what I mean. So, um, everyone sort of knows Holly as this amazing diva who's got this incredible voice and um, all her songs and production have been sort of treated like that, whereas I wanted to kind of do something a little bit more drastic, a little bit more um, freaky. So yeah, I'm glad you like that track. It's beautiful. There's a video for it too on YouTube. Uh, totally animated. Um, so, oh, and then there's a little cute little interlude with your, your son in the album as well. Uh, yeah, yeah, my little boy Chico. Uh, Charlie Tamarama, it's just a little wee thing that I recorded while he was there. Um, just, you know, he, he's still only just learning to how to talk. He's only two, two years old, two years, three months old. So when I recorded him, it was like, um, maybe it was about a year and a half. That's funny. <laughs> so I, I wanted to kind of put that on the record too. Mm. Um, because it leads into a song called My Lion, which I wrote for him. My precious son, these words are for you. Listen carefully and you'll know what to do. Be the best that you can always be. So you love your Dusty Murray here, Radio New Zealand National Te with Tiki Tane. How do you interpret artistic freedom? It's artistic freedom, the freedom of speech is such a broad thing, so I can't really pinpoint it down to one thing. But all I can say in my case is that, for those who don't know, um, I was arrested at my own gig for singing um, a controversial lyric from a rap group called NWA, and quite intense anyway. So, so it's kind of like... It's a political song. Um, I sang it while the police were in the building and they got annoyed and came back and hassled me out about it and ended up arresting me and throwing me in the cell for it. So my point is that I feel that at my own R18 concert, um, adults only, it's private, people pay money to come see me perform. I should be allowed to sing um, explicit lyrics. I think that once people start, or the police um, start... Um, you know, arresting musicians or uh, uh, comedians or people who make sculpture or art or paint pictures, um, the police start arresting them for doing things that are controversial, then, you know, I don't think, um, I think it's a pretty scary territory to start getting into. It's just unfortunate it kind of ended like that. Um, I was on stage for two and a half hours. Um, I sang so many different lyrics, so many different rap songs. I sang all sorts of stuff, you know. Um, it's just a bummer that one police officer took it out of context. So I'm not sure where that came from. You know, I'm, I'm definitely inciting good times and inciting people to dance, but I'm not inciting people to get violent. So they are viewing that as the lyrics, the content of that song incited the crowd to to perhaps um, go a little crazy. Yeah, put their hands in the air and go woohoo. But um, that's that's something that I do. I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of making people have a good time and put their hands in the air and sing the lyrics. But... I'm definitely not guilty for inciting violence and the crowd to get violent. Hey, Tiki, the, uh, the first track on your album, you do a bit of a shout-out to the newcomers to uh, 1814 yeah. to Catch a Fire. You do a shout-out to Lady yeah. Six. Yeah, I mean, it's also just a, it's a, like, a, I love, you know, it's also me just saying, man, I love your stuff. Um, yeah. Keep it up. You know, New Zealand music's come such a long, long way. Um, and, um, you know, like... You say newcomers, but Lady Six has been around for a long, long time. Yeah, that's right. I, I, first, I first met her when she was about 14, you know, and now she's living in Berlin, rocking it over there. Um, 
Um, 1814 have been around for a long time as well, you know, so, and 660 are coming, are coming through as well. So um, I just wanted to say, look, summertime, I love summertime in New Zealand. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, sweet ass. Hey, just one more question. I know that people, you know, all your interviews that you've done, they probably ask you about your various um, tattoos. Yeah, yeah. Can I please ask, how many now? <laughs> Can you... How many... I always, say just, I always say just one, one big one. This is one big one. one yeah, it's a work in progress. I first started getting tattoo and muko when I was 14. I'm 34 now. Um, so now I guess I'm just doing the bits and pieces that are kind of connecting it all together. Um, and unfortunately, they're, they're the really sore bits, you know what I mean? Like the <laughs> kneecaps the, and the neck and, and uh, all sorts of places where the sun don't shine. So <laughs> I, I'm kind of... Um, and I'm starting to tattoo myself as well, which is heaps of fun. I, I'm really enjoying that. So, um, yeah, wow. yeah it's, it's just something that I've been into. Um, I love it. I think it's the most ultimate art form. And um, anyone who, who's prepared to um, get muko or tattoo, I, I take my hat off to them because it's, it's such a um, uh, such an amazing experience. But also um, the conditions that that are involved to actually wear and carry muko or tattoo is so full on because you get judged. Um, instantly by a lot mm. of people, you know. So um, I think my I'm just trying to my, push the positive side of tattooing and, um, and and put my hand up and say, yo, it's it's a beautiful art form. We're not all gangsters, or you know, what I mean? <laughs> yeah. or, or we're not going out we're not out there to to, to to rob you or anything like that. It's, I think it's a beautiful art form, and and um, I wish everyone had um, had some muko or tattoos. That's what I see. Kia ora, Tiki Tane taking a break from his busy schedule on the road and we'll keep you up to date with what happens with that court case. It was about 2.30 in the morning, June the 10th, 1886. The mountains, three peaks exploded. Today it remains the largest eruption in New Zealand history. It also destroyed the pink and white terraces. Last Friday it was the 125th anniversary of the eruption of Mount Tarawera. In our coverage, we have three archival recordings coming up. The first features Mrs J.S. Thompson and was recorded in 1961. I am 80 years of age and I have much to remember. To be 80 years of age today means that my childhood was spent in days not very far removed from the two pioneering days of New Zealand. Indeed, the young people of today would say that the way we lived in the days of last century must have been the very essence of pioneering. The memory I wish to tell you about now is one of my childhood memories, one of the very vivid memories of my childhood. Vivid in every way, for it is the memory of actually seeing the terrible eruption that was June the 10th, 1886. I was too young to be afraid, and at that time we did not know that the eruption we were watching was as close to us as it was. We thought it was White Island. Mount Tarawera was 60 miles from us as the crow flies across the plains, no hills to blot our view. I well remember the night. My father, who was a justice of the peace for the Taupo district, had been busy all day at the courthouse at Taupo. He had ridden the 30 miles home to our station, Loch Inver. My father always rode a very good horse and he would have cared for any horse after a long ride. There was much to do on his return. His horse had to be rubbed down, fed and stabled. 
for it was late at night and a cold, frosty night. And it was close on midnight when my parents settled down for the night. Not very long after the earthquakes began, at first my parents were not really disturbed by the earthquakes, but when the rumbling noises began, my mother wondered if the roaring noise meant that a chimney was on fire. My father was not concerned. He felt sure the chimneys were safe enough, but my mother got up and looked up all the chimneys. All was safe. There was no sign of a chimney on fire. She went back to bed. Still the earthquakes and rumblings went on. It was all becoming more strange. My mother dressed herself and had the children dressed. My youngest sister she left with my father, who would not be concerned by the strange night. He said we were safe. No mountain was near us that could danger us. My mother took the three of us downstairs, where she felt we were safer. Shortly before two o'clock in the morning, there was a violent explosion, a really terrifying noise. My mother took us out of doors onto the veranda. The sky was lit by great flashes of flame as we watched the mountain bursting forth in violent eruption. Great rocks were visible against the bright flames as they were shot into the air. The red flames of the volcano showed clearly the showers of rocks being shot up into the air that I cannot possibly forget the strangeness and the colour of the sight. Lightning was visible too, as well as the flames and sparks. By this time the station hands were astir too. Our servant, Sarah, was very afraid, but in a good Irish way, calmly went her way to prepare early morning supper for my mother. It fell to my mother to calm the station hands, who by this time came running up from the men's quarters. They were quite convinced that it was the end of the world. My mother assured them that it was not the end of the world, but an eruption somewhere over the skyline, possibly White Island. One of the men, the cowboy, whom we called the sky boy, because he was always looking up at the sky, said very excitedly to my mother, Oh, but mistress, it is the end of the world. I saw it coming up by the canal. All the while he was struggling to get, in, to get his arms into his coat sleeves, in his haste, he had taken another pair of trousers instead of his coat. He was too excited about the end of the world to see the difference, but no doubt he wished to be suitably dressed to meet the end of the world. At our home, we watched the strange happenings a while longer, and then my mother took us upstairs to bed. All night the earthquakes went on, some smaller, some bigger. Eventually morning dawned. For us as clear as any other bright, clear winter morning. We were behind the fall of ash. It was not dark with us. We were miles from neighbours and not connected by telephone. It was three days before we knew that it was Mount Tarawira that we had seen burst forth in eruption. Three days afterwards, my mother rode the seven miles out to the road to meet the mail coach from Napier and collect our mail bag. My mother usually rode a spirited chestnut horse and her side saddle was a white doeskin quilted in blue silk. My mother always enjoyed her ride out to the mail coach. The coach driver told her the news. Three weeks afterwards, my two uncles rode over to the mountain as close as they could, and then they walked to where they could get a good view of the strange mountain. Even then the soles were burnt from their boots. This memory is certainly the strangest one of my childhood and obviously left a huge impression on a five-year-old. Kia ora, Mrs J.S. Thompson talking about the Tarawera eruption recorded in 1961 when she was 80 years old. So how did this event affect local Māori, the Tuhorangi people? Recorded in 2008 on the Wātea News Network, Tuhorangi Komatua, Anarurangi Huia, talks about the displacement of Tuhorangi and the effects felt today. First up, the host of the show, Dale Husband. The eruption of Mount Tarawera in 1886 destroyed not only the famed pink and white terraces, but the homes and cultivations of the people on the lake shores. Kamatua Anaru Rangihoya says June the 10th is a reminder of not only how much there we lost, but also of the generosity of Fanonga and neighbouring iwi who took the survivors in. He says the Crown profited from the eruption by taking Tuhorangi land, 
which the iwi is still trying to get back. We lost a lot of our, uh, our lands around Tarawera, around our lakes here, and they're now held in Crown Agency of Department of Conservation. I think that's really sad and really wrong of the Crown not to consider returning most of those lands back to us. I asked them how things uh, will be celebrated today, and that, of course, one of the leading komato of the two Hodangi people. And uh, he spoke briefly about um, about how the eruption had affected his um, his people. It's a very sensitive issue for us, and a very sad one. Of course, we we were displaced from our lands in 1886, June the 10th. Our people were desecrated and lost our homes and lost our villages and lost our most precious Tonga. And that was the, <clears throat> the pink and white terraces. However, we were invited by many we around the country to, with offers of land for us, for the survivors to go and live on. And some of us took that offer up by Ngati Maru, our, our close kin and relative from Ngati Maru. And some of my people too, from Tuhorangi went to live there and work there as well. They stayed for, some, for a number of years, many died there, and eventually returning home around about the era just before the First World War. And, um, and, they, and they brought the, the remains of our, their dead back to be interred at Whakarewarewa. But it's a really sad one for us because the land remained here and it eventually was it, it somehow became the, the, um, the property of the Crown uh, for, for reasons that we feel unjust. And we lost a lot of our, our lands around Tarawera, around our lakes here. And they're now held in, in Crown Agency of Department of Conservation. I think that's really sad and really wrong of the Crown not to consider returning most of those lands back to us. However, we still have lands here that we're proposing to return back in the, in the, next, uh, the next few, few years, not, not too long. I think it's timely that we do think about coming back to, to Tarawera. There was some talk, or was it all just um, just talk about GPS positioning satellites, rediscovering the pink and white terraces, even even uh, looking at the feasibility of one day maybe attempting to uncover some to see what's uh, underneath. Uh, is, well, that, is that just talk? No, no. That we had been approached by a couple of guys that were offering their services to uh, to try and determine where the pink and white terraces are. And it's a, it's a very difficult one because I don't believe that they still exist. I believe the the, uh, the nature of the explosions of Lake Rotamana blew them to pieces and scattered their remains all over the land and in in the water itself. <clears throat> uh, from time to time, uh, features from the Pink and White Terrace are found on the land, and as you as you scrape away the uh, the debris and growth, you see the silicon formations in these uh, blocks of uh, blocks of the pink white terraces. And so uh, uh, while there was being talk, I think the only thing that we can do is to tell our history about them. The history belongs to Tuaurangi. And if the other people are telling it, no, no better people can talk about the pink and white terrace and and how our people managed them and uh, managed the tours and took the guided tours across there. We were the first guides in New Zealand to, uh, to undertake guiding at all in any form. An archival recording from 2008 as we commemorate the 125th anniversary of the Mount Tarawera eruption. We end our coverage today with our last recording. Now, while we do our best to find out details, it can be a mission. Sometimes information and dates are lost. So, although this next speaker is unknown to us, what he offers up is the background to a waiata composed by his grandfather and performed by the people of Tuhaurangi. When in uh, composing of this song, it was composed by an, <clears throat> my grandfather, uh, Takeba Dungi Buf. And 
He composed it on the morning of the, 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 the morning of the eruption. The eruption uh, occurred at two o'clock in the morning on the June the 10th. And he was so busy, I understand, so they tell me, trying to uh, get everybody into cover at the only meeting house that we had there at that time. They put them under cover. However, <coughs> as, as the break of day, uh, supposed to be, it was still uh, dark. Anyway, he sang the song, composed of them as he stood. Now, the, the people will now give to you a song, the, the song, a lament, a lament rather, of his, uh, his uh, bidding his uh, people farewell, the tribe, the intertribes within Tuhuru. Again, I repeat, this has a medium of very much the same as has been portrayed by limbs to you in their way, where we will express our views of it in our traditional Maori way. Kia ora, 
And if you can help us out with identifying who the co-coordinator was, please do email us at teahika at radionz.co.nz or Facebook us, teahika. And what taonga niha. These recordings really give you an insight into that time. If you want to relive history, you can listen to this program again at our website, radionz.co.nz forward slash teahika. That's T-E-A-H-I-K-A-A. I'm Justine Murray. And I'm Mariah Rakraku, and this is Te Ahika. The signature black and white uniform with hats, gloves and of course badges are a common sight at both Māori and non-Māori events. From crowd control to night patrol, the Māori wardens are a staple part of Māori communities. The idea of Wātene Māori really started to evolve from the 1940s. And don't be fooled by their passive stance. For example, following the recent Christchurch earthquakes, Māori wardens from around the Motu band together, handing out supplies, water and food. Earlier this week, I attended a hui in Wellington where there's a push to put more Māori wardens on patrol in downtown Wellington. I spoke to Rob Rutene. I'm from the Wararapa. My marae is Papuai, uh, Ngāti Mui, uh, Ngāti Kaiparipuru. I'm the national manager of the Māori Warden Project in the police. Kapai. And um, now you spoke about Operation uh, Unite. What, what, what was that about? Yeah, Operation Unite is an international operation involving Australia New Zealand Police Force. Um, actually started two years ago, uh, last year, sorry. 2000, uh, 2010. It involves um, uh, police and uh, organisations and supporting agencies working together to um, address the alcohol abuse in communities. What happens on the night over weekend, in this case it was over the weekend, is that we go out, uh, the police and the uh, supporting agencies such as the Māori Wardens and Community Patrols for example, um, go out there and just work together, handing out information to people about the effects of alcohol abuse and visiting um, licensed premises and talking to people um, who they come in contact with over the night, just enforcing um, good good measures, good um, drinking standards and being careful out there. And uh, in the last um, one was um, about a month ago, and we had some good results out there in the, in the community in terms of um, how we've engaged with the people. What difference in your experience does the Māori wardens have working alongside police? Um, the difference that they have, and I suppose the, the advantage they have, is that they are not police, um, and they provide a, 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 a sorry a bridge, I suppose, between the police and the community. Um, they have a familiar face. So they know, so the community knows who they are. Um, yet they have a uniform, and they um, are able to engage on a lot, a different level to the police. And we see that as a um, huge advantage for us as police, because we have a. Um, Is it almost like a calming effect? Um, yeah, more a passive calming effect. People see the Māori waters and would rather approach them and talk to them sometimes than the police, where the police may be seen in a different light. Um, depend- determine on how what that person's <laughs> views are. Um, but I see that um, the Māori wardens have a specific role and not so much um, in regards to the police but there are roles within themselves such as how they, they can talk and engage, how they know their community, how they're known, um, how they know the whānau d- dynamics out their community and how they generally are people that are respected by their community for actually becoming a Māori warden and so they have a little bit, they have a, a, quite a bit of respect um, and would like to see that um, respect continue. They are generally good role models and good mentors for people. And um, they're much more than just crowd control at the marae? Oh, for sure. Um, we've moved over over the years from that parking the vehicles around the back of the marae to actually being out in front of the marae, being um, looking um, polished in their uniform, um, looking sharp, having also a number of skills um, as well. Um, over the last few years since we've offered um, a number of training um, initiatives and, and skills for the body wardens, um, communication skills, 
relationship skills. And going to the police college for three days to Yeah, a number, train. A number of Māori wardens have um, engaged in the, the National uh, Māori Warden Project, um, which involves um, police foundation training, and that just involves learning some aspects about the law um, and how it relates to them out in the community. Um, and we're seeing them use those skills in the community on a, on a day-to-day basis. Now, this particular hui uh, that we've just uh, finished, uh, Rob, was it about increasing the visibility of Māori wardens, particularly in the capital, in Wellington? Yes, it is. Um, we see Wellington as the capital city of New Zealand, and we see that uh, there isn't a uh, Māori warden presence as we speak, but we're hoping that from this first initial meeting that the Māori Warden uh, Network will revitalise and that we will see a presence um, back in the city. We think it's needed and uh, we see Wellington as a, as a key um, place for, for us to, to help and assist and support the Māori Wardens coming back. So in comparison to Auckland, the visibility is pretty low. In Auckland, it would be different, wouldn't it? The visibility of Māori, Watini Māori? They, they, they have a presence, a good presence, strong presence in, in Auckland, counties Manukau, Waitakere. Um, and we have a good, strong presence to, here too in Porirua and out in Nainai and even Upper Lao Hutt. But we haven't quite seen that presence here in the city. And that's, that's really the intention now is to, to build our capacity out in the city. In the, in the city. Um, but as well, we've got a number of big events coming up, such as the World Cup, um, yeah. where we will have thousands of visitors to our shores, to Wellington. Wellington has got a number of key key games, so it would be good to have the Māori wardens come back as ambassadors, I suppose, um, of the community, so that people can see them and see, oh yes, there's Māori wardens, get to know who they are, and um, maybe from the World Cup have a, have a profile that will continue on after the World Cup. Now there was a nice little wee ditty of a story you told in there, Rob, about um, a Māori warden from the Wairarapa that, that goes around on his scooter. Can you tell us? Yes, that's right. That was a, one of our old queer who uh, was one of the last Māori wardens um, in, in the Wairarapa and when I was there in 2007, 2006, sorry. And she used to, um, she used to patrol on her scooter <laughs> with her Māori warden uniform. Um, proudly in doing that too. And... Uh, she was really sort of one of those people that uh, we sort of uh, uh, came off the, the, her work and that and, and managed to motivate the Māori Wardens back in the Warrapa again. So the stories like that that are coming around uh, as, as the Māori Wardens come into force around the country, we have different stories from different areas, yeah. but it's all about gathering momentum. Um, a story today was, was had here and uh, I'm hoping the momentum we gather so that we can continue on and the Māori Wardens will be back um, in the city in the very short term in the, in the very near future. Kia ora, kei tuatū ki tērā, Rob Rūtine. Kia ora. Kia ora. Next week, a Whanganui Warden from the front line gives us his take on what has been a long-term commitment to the Wardens. But Justine met a woman excited to start that journey. My name's Nolene Smiler. Where are you from, Nolene? Um, Tapuika, Tūhoi, Ngāti so what do you think the purpose of the hui today was? Was to um, establish um, another um, Māori committee, the presence of Māori wardens here in Te Whanganui Ātara um, City, which is actually a big place. Um, so in terms of um, our hui today, it was for that, for that reason. What's your experience in, in, in Wātene Māori, Māori wardens? Um, my, my experience of Wātene Māori wardens has, has mainly at, um, been in a governance level. Um, I've, I've actually been a part of um, executive um, committee for the last six years, but um, because of the work that I see that they do, I actually want to get down there and to actually total there as well, um, because I see a need for it in terms of our young people, and also in terms of the positive presence that Māori Watini are, um, as, as I conveyed today at the today at the Sui, it, it's their Watini presence that I think. Is, is really um, essential to actually give guidance and nurturing to our young people on the streets. Yeah, yep. definitely. Um, and you were saying that you're on the, you're close to getting your your Watini Māori yes, badge. Yes, I've processed that. Um, I, I'm a mother of eight eight kids, um, eight tamariki, and I've got uh, eleven muku. Um, very very involved in community boards, 
Um, but you've still got time to be a warden. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that's my passion. Um, I guess it's my passion for the struggles of Māori, because I've seen them as a mother. Um, I've seen them on all different levels. Um, so I know that um, in order to, um, to be a solution, you actually have to be in there. So I'm... And I'm, I'm there in all different levels, and I'm okay with that. I'm cool with that. That's my life. <laughs> Kia ora. Kia ora. Eki Nolene must be a nudie of Kingi Smiler. You heard from him earlier in the corridor about the Ahu Whenua Trophy, and you can hear it all again at our webpage, radionz.co.nz forward slash te ahika. Aneira and Nick Roskridge met te whakatauki i tēnei wiki. The the whakatauki e kore e riro he tamori no rarotonga. So effectively, the cabbage tree is never carried away in a gale, and that's a symbol of the strength of a natural element in adversity. So we should um, remind ourselves that you can hold strong even in adversity, and you can get through it and come out the other side effectively. So that's the the message behind that whakatauki. That's us, well, for this week. Next week we're back, this time profiling Māori production house headed by Hone Koka and media George Tawata Productions whose Matariki Development Festival kicks off again for the second year, this time helping to develop new works by Hine Ka Mako and Jamie McCaskill. Exciting stuff. And I'm out in a paddock in Palmerston North, harvesting Taiwa Māori, Māori potatoes. Hoi anō, nā mihi atu ki nā kai kōrero i tēnei wiki, nā mihi o te wā ki a koutou katoa e whakarongo mai anō. Kia pai o koutou Matariki. Ki ngā kaiwhakamahia rorohiko ka mau ki te wehi. Mai te whānau a te ahi kā ki a tātou katoa. Mauri ora tātou katoa.